Halloween begins. first thing you see when Halloween starts is a house. It's an ordinary house, white, square, two windows on the top floor, and slim columns on the porch that look like teeth. If you were to pause the image right there, the house would look almost like a jack-o'-lantern. Go closer. Cross the quiet street. Go up near the porch, and when you hear the voice of a teenage girl, turn right, go around the corner, and go up to a window. You're a spy. This is fun. My parents won't be home until 10. Are you sure? The girl's cute. She's got knee socks, blonde hair tied back in a bow. There's a boy there, too, and he kisses her. He squeezes her a bit, and then he puts on a clown mask, and he kisses her again. We are alone, aren't we? Michael's around someplace. They think they're alone. Take off that thing. Even so, they go upstairs for privacy. Let's go upstairs. Okay. You retrace your steps to the front yard, look up, see an upstairs bedroom light cut off. You go to the back of the house, faster now, further. Inside the back door, is this still okay? And a hand, your hand, slashes into the frame. Your hand yanks open a drawer. You pull out a knife. No. No, this is not okay. You walk through the kitchen, through the dining room, curve past the couch just in time to see the boyfriend put on his shirt and race down the stairs. If you looked left, he'd see you, whoever you are. He doesn't. He leaves. And now there's nothing to keep you from going up the staircase. Your hand grabs that clown mask, puts it on, and now your view shrinks to two eye holes. You walk through one bedroom to the next, and there's the girl. Naked. Beautiful. Brushing that blonde hair. You walk right up to her and... Michael! That's you. You're Michael. The knife is in your hand. The girl is dying on the floor. Then you spin around, walk right down the stairs, walk right through the front door, up to a man. He's staring back at you. He rips off your mask. Finally, the long, relentless opening shot ends and you are outside the killer's head. And you see who he is. A six-year-old boy. Michael Michael Myers. Happy Halloween. It was the first time there was a movie just designed to make him scream. A woman stood up in the middle of the theater and screamed out loud. A horror movie is special if it's scary. This is something that's very real. This is something that happens to women, that experience of being followed, of having somebody watching your every move. This is a screwed up mind. This is a fragmented person. He's a pure, unknowable evil. And that's what makes Halloween perfect. Michael Myers' Halloween is iconic. I, I think the scariest part was that he he doesn't die at the end. So when you're 10, it's like, that guy's still out there. <laughs> we, we gotta get him. 
what makes a great horror movie is one thing, a great story. My entire movie business is more informed by John Carpenter than any other single director. Welcome to Halloween Unmasked, The Ringer's eight-part dive into the soul of Michael Myers. The story of how he came to life, the lives he touched sometimes with a knife, and how he changed horror and Hollywood forever without saying a word. I'm film critic Amy Nicholson, and I'll be doing a lot of the talking, along with all of the voices you just heard and more. That includes John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis, and everyone brave enough to enter my recording lair. Over the next eight episodes, Unmasked and I and you are going to learn a lot of things. We're going to start by getting to know John Carpenter, the future Prince of Darkness, when he was a strange kid determined to make movies. Anybody out there listening who wants to make movies, make it your vision. What else are you living for? Why are you alive? We're going to psychoanalyze Michael Myers and his psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis. The concern here is that there's enough information provided that would lead us to assume that Loomis misdiagnosed Myers. Our beloved scream queen, Jamie Lee Curtis, tells us why people need to stop caring that Lori Strode is a virgin. You know what? I was a virgin at 17 in high school. Uh, a lot of girls are virgins at 17 in high school. And why she's come back again to horror films when she hates watching them. We're going to get into the sequels for good and bad. And the knockoffs, which are mostly bad. We're going to meet psychiatrists and producers and photographers. We're going to talk to musicians and mask makers. And we're going to talk to the filmmakers who grew up on Halloween and have found a modern way to tap its austere power. Like director David Gordon Green, who just made his own Halloween, a follow-up so worthy of being in the hallow canon that both John Carpenter and Jimmy Lee returned. John with a new spine-tingling soundtrack and Jamie with a powerful Laurie Strode who is done being afraid. We wanted to make something that was about the essence of evil and the power within our protagonist to overcome that and make it very simple and make it very straightforward, but take what we love about Laurie Strode and give her uh, an empowerment project. As Halloween's opening shot proved, we are all Michael Myers. Now that's scary. But before we do all of that, let's start with the fast history of horror movies to find out why Halloween was so shocking. So guess when the first horror film was born? Okay, I'll tell you. It was 1896. That is 82 years before Halloween would change horror forevermore. It was called The Haunted Castle, and it was directed by George Melius, who you guys might know from his more famous film, A Trip to the Moon. What he's doing in this film in 1896, in the super early horror film, is he is holding the camera still. It never moves. And he just makes scary things appear and disappear. There's a bat, and there's a witch, and there's a ghost. And this is the point where from here on out, audiences no longer believe what they see. For a long time, that is all a horror film was. There was a castle, there was a monster, there was maybe some mist. It doesn't look scary today because we've grown up seeing tons of monsters. We've grown up with tons of vampires and spooky things hanging out in castles. But a hundred years ago, a monster was scary because you had never seen a monster. All the monster had to do was show up. I am Dracula. You've got your Draculas and your Wolfman and your Frankensteins, but they were just prowling around castles. In these movies, these monsters were so far away from normal life that you were never scared they'd follow you home. But at least now, as horror continues, there's music and there's suspense and you can hear the victim scream. Then came World War II and Hiroshima and the terrors of the atomic age. 
Our movies had giant bugs and they had shrunken men. I mean, there were mad scientists and there were 16-story lizards. Godzilla, king of the monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror. We were scared of science, or really, we were scared of what we humans might do with science. Of all these films, only Alfred Hitchcock dared to drag audiences out of these laboratories and these moors and put them in a deadly motel. But nobody else followed behind him, for now. Then the spiritual 60s warped into this fascination with the occult. The Exorcist and the Wicker Man and Rosemary's Baby. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? He has his father's eyes. Horror was trying harder and harder to impress people. I mean, plots were getting baroque. There were spells and there were demons and there were these psychokinetic kids. An unnaturally angry shark. You're going to need a bigger boat. Some of these movies were great, but they felt like movies. They felt like things you could probably avoid. You know, don't go into that castle. Don't go to the water. Don't be mean to a girl who could psychically burn down a prom. Those are the horror films that the big studios were making. And then if you wanted something more disreputable, in the margins, say, at the drive-ins where horror films were also touring the country, you could watch a movie where a van full of hippies just happened to break down in Texas and go knocking for help at a house that just happened to be a family of chainsaw-wielding cannibals. Hello? That is terrifying, but that is probably something you can also avoid. But Halloween's Michael Myers was different. Michael Myers marched into the suburbs. He marched into the bedrooms of ordinary, any-town girls who hadn't done anything at all. There was nothing you could do to avoid him. And now no one was safe. John Carpenter's Halloween cut through all the complications and the coincidences and the contrivances. It slashed away the safety net between audiences and horror movies, like a knife, with a knife. It murdered tradition, and people loved it. Halloween became the most successful independent movie ever made, and it held that record for 22 years. Halloween changed horror, and it changed Hollywood. It inspired slasher copycats, a whole psych ward of screwed-up killers. Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, cemeteries of hacked-up babes. There were sequels and crossovers. I mean, Jason went to Manhattan, a leprechaun went to space... Slasher movies stuffed video stores. I mean, so many that eventually the genre murdered itself. And yet we can't escape Michael Myers. Four decades later, he still haunts us like he hunts his favorite victim, Laurie Strode. An ordinary girl from Haddonfield, Illinois, played by a very not ordinary girl named Jamie Lee Curtis. Her first film and her forever role. To have a character last 40 years and you're the character, that's crazy. And, uh, you know, I've had myriad careers, and I've raised two kids, and I've been married a long time, and, and yet, you know, Laurie Strode will always be this beautiful girl that I will be known for and known as. Forty years. Four decades. Jamie Lee has grown up with Laurie Strode. We all have. And this month, the 40-year anniversary of John Carpenter's first film, she's playing Laurie Strode again in a new Halloween where... Very mild spoiler alert here. She stops being the victim and starts hunting Michael. That is who Laurie is today. Laurie Strode could be a Me Too voice 
for people who've had violence perpetrated on them. And, you know, Laurie Strode's violence is fake. It's not real. But in a movie, to see a character come around 40 years later and say, no more, hashtag me too, is powerful. You know, maybe the three most important decisions around the movie were that idea and having John and Jamie involved. How important was John Carpenter's blessing? Um, John Carpenter's blessing was um, vital because if he didn't do it, I wasn't going to do it. Really? 100%. And um, 100% I was not going to do it. Producer Jason Blum specializes in making horror movies that are smart and cheap and have scary, relevant social impact. He made The Purge, he made Get Out, and now he's made this brand new, powerfully feminist Halloween. Now, horror movies since Frankenstein, since the beginning of time, have had social messages. So there's nothing new about doing that. But the person who was the best at it was John Carpenter. So he looms very, very large at Blumhouse in all of our psyche. So let's get into John Carpenter's psyche and explore what inspired him or really scared him into creating Halloween's bloodbath town of Haddonfield. To understand Haddonfield, we need to talk about John's childhood, which was isolated and strange and creative and violent, and it was the map that guided him to make Halloween. Let's go on that journey with him right after this break. This episode of Halloween Unmasked is brought to you by Universal Orlando's Halloween Horror Nights, which brings together the stories and visions of the world's most notorious creators of horror. Select nights September 14th through November 3rd at Universal Studios Florida. From cinematic greats and crazed current cult favorites to the park's original abominations, every year the legend grows and your experience reaches beyond your wildest nightmares. Enter terrifying haunted houses inspired by the biggest names in horror, including, by the way, a Halloween floor maze. You're never quite sure if your spine is tingling with dread or sheer excitement. Surrounded in shadow by screams and mad laughter, face nightmares creatures on streets twisted into sinister scare zones. As the sun sets on days filled with thrills, the night awakens with a frightening chill. Lose yourself in outrageous live shows filled with diabolically entertaining surprises. Escape to some of Universal Studios' most exhilarating attractions where heart-pounding takes on a different meaning until the horror calls you back. Learn more at HalloweenHorrorNights.com. That's HalloweenHorrorNights.com. We are also brought to you by AMC Network's Shudder, which is a premium video streaming service serving fans with the best selection of horror and thrillers. Shudder is awesome. If you haven't used it yet, you will absolutely die. What they have is the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. It's basically Netflix, but only for people who are obsessed with horror. And I will say that I am a subscriber, and I used it copiously while researching this show. For just $4.99 a month on Shudder, you can stream great thrillers, awesome horror, really good suspense. On all of your favorite devices, Shudder works on iPhone, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Android devices. And what you'll find once you go in is this really great library of horror films that's divided into all sorts of crazy categories that you didn't even know were categories until you looked at them and you're like, why yes, I am in the mood for witch films with a spiritual bent. And then, boom, here you go. You have a ton of them and they are all really amazing. And right now, as you're listening to this, Shudder has launched their Halloween Classics collection. That means right now, all subscribers, you can watch Halloween, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, over and over and over again, which you probably should, because if you're listening to the show, we're going to be talking about all of them, and we're going to be talking about them a lot, as well as a couple other films that I was watching on Shudder to prepare, like The Fog, which is John Carpenter's next film after Halloween, and a film that you're really going to want to watch called Black Christmas. 
So go try Shudder right now for free for 14 days. Go to Shudder.com slash Unmasked and use promo code Unmasked. That's Shudder.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com slash Unmasked with promo code Unmasked and watch a bazillion horror films. Get into your scary mood for the month of October right now. Check it out. And now, back to Halloween Unmasked. Haddonfield. We're going to spend a lot more time in Haddonfield, a fictional town imagined to be in Illinois, in Livingston County, Illinois, somewhere off the Great American Highway, Route 66. Livingston County is 91% white and middle class, which is a lot like the people in the film. That is Haddonfield. Or Haddonfield with an asterisk, because it is a town dreamed up by John Carpenter and his co-writer and girlfriend, Deborah Hill. To be very clear, Haddonfield, Illinois does not exist. But what scares us about Haddonfield does. So to understand that and to understand why John Carpenter created it, we need to drive south six hours across the Mason-Dixon line to Bowling Green, Kentucky. Modern horror starts here. Way down in Bowling Green, prettiest girls I've Bowling Green is the third largest city in Kentucky, but Kentucky's pretty darn rural. That's Marissa Butler from the Bowling Green Area Convention and Visitors Bureau. We have a historic downtown square here, so um, that was certainly the heart of town um, when the city first was being developed. Um, We have buildings that surround, you know, that are on the square there that are, you know, Civil War era buildings still that have been restored. Bowling Green was the capital of Confederate Kentucky during the Civil War. No one alive during the Civil War is alive today, of course, but when John Carpenter moved to Kentucky in 1953, there were still a few. They were 90, 95 years old, sitting on their porch watching cars go by. Cars were an invention they wouldn't have even seen until they were in their 40s. John Carpenter was born in Carthage, New York. That's a paper mill town up by the Canadian border. He lived up north until his dad got a job as a music professor at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green. John was five years old, and he clearly remembers the big move. So we come down to this to the Jim Crow South, and uh, it's it was pretty rough down there. Uh, had uh, theaters were segregated, and, uh, everything was segregated back then. It was astonishing when I think about it. But uh, you know, these hillbillies they can be pretty rough. So that's where I learned about evil. There were good Christian people in Bowling Green, and some of them really were good. And some of the good Christians were the sort who thought God would punish them for talking to someone black. Rosa Parks won the fight against segregated buses not long after John moved to Kentucky. But the good Christian civic leaders of Bowling Green did not want to integrate the buses even when they legally had to. Instead, they just shut down the buses. An hour to the south, civil rights activists were protesting at lunch counters in Nashville. Meanwhile, in Bowling Green... John's high school girlfriend told him that one morning as her grandfather was driving her to school, a black man crossed the street. Her grandfather sped up and hit the man with his car. He killed him. And then her grandfather pulled over to a payphone, called the cops, told them what he'd done, and said they'd better come pick up the body. I was even friends with some evil people, too. But by evil, I mean that they, they don't care about others at all. They have no uh, uh, empathy. They don't care. Here is how a couple of John's high school buddies would spend a Saturday night. They'd drive to the black section of Bowling Green with guns, real guns, and they would shoot at the houses even if there was someone on the porch. Cruelty like that, it sticks with you. 
People use the word inhuman for a hateful racist who do hateful things. But John learned as a boy, as this New York foreigner transplanted to the South, that inhuman is the wrong word. These people he knew were human, all right. Some of them John even liked a little, which made him feel worse. Now, I want to stress that Bowling Green, Kentucky is not an exceptionally cruel place. It's just American. If John Carpenter had stayed up north, Carthage had its problems, too. In 1964, a white police officer shot a 15-year-old black teenager, and that triggered a riot that raged across the state. But John didn't stay up north. He was in Bowling Green. And so Bowling Green gets the bragging rights and the blame for being the place where John Carpenter learned about evil. For being the place where the themes of Halloween began. I think that's just where he saw... um People on the surface being really nice, and and maybe not so much when uh, when you got to the to the to the heart of the story. John started to think about what a human being was, about the mask that people wore to pretend that they were good. This mask that they wore even when they looked in the mirror. His friends, their protectors, the grandfathers, everyone. The women, the girls there are. You think they're really nice? They hate your guts. Behind all that southern charm, yeah, it's hiding. It's hiding the evil. John thought a lot about everything. I mean, when John was 11, his dad explained existentialism, about how people have free will, which makes them responsible for their actions. Let's take a moment to picture this scene. Young John Carpenter had a long face, dark eyes, and this haircut that looked both short and sloppy, like he was this kid who could not color inside the lines. His ears stuck out. His dad had big ears, too. I mean, musician genetics. Plus, a big nose and big black-rimmed glasses. And they're having this conversation in a very weird place. A log cabin. Yes, John Carpenter grew up in a log cabin just like Abraham Lincoln. And no, in Bowling Green in the 1950s and 60s, growing up in a log cabin was not normal. Yeah, it's very unique. Um, Pretty much everybody knows what you're talking about when you say the log cabin. John's log cabin was the only one in town, and it was right in the middle of the Western Kentucky campus. It wasn't near the other houses where kids would play outside before supper. John was stranded. He was alone. But for John Carpenter, the log cabin was home. It was more than home. It was the domain of all my fantasies and dreams when I was a young kid. You know, I fell in love with the movies really young, so I would uh, create in there, do all sorts of things in that log cabin. It was great. I loved it. The boy in the log cabin fell in love with the movies really young. When I was eight years old, I saw this movie in the theater uh, called Forbidden Planet. It was the name of the movie, and it just influenced me to be a director. In my eight-year-old mind, I thought, that's what I want to do. Imagine yourself as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future. Leslie Nielsen goes to a planet where uh, Anne Francis is swimming naked. And there's a invisible monster. It, it, it was a terrific, terrific mid-50s movie. Terrific. Didn't bring my bathing suit. What's a bathing suit? Oh, murder. John Carpenter went to a lot of movies. There were two movie theaters in downtown Bowling Green, the Capitol and the State. There were two drive-ins, the Lost River and the Riverside. I rarely went to the drive-ins when I was young. I always went downtown. They were very, it would cost 25 cents. And I wanted to see the science fiction and horror movies. I loved those. But I saw everything. Westerns, comedies, uh, Frank Sinatra movies, anything that was playing. I just fell in love with it. My mother gave me that gift, gave me the gift of movies. 
And then he came home to Cabin Sweet Cabin, and that is where eight-year-old John Carpenter began to make his own movies. Terror from Space, Sorcerer from Space, Gorgon, the Space Monster, Gorgo vs. Godzilla, Revenge of the Colossal Beasts. These movies had no plots and no budget and no girls, because back then, John didn't really know any. They were the kind of backyard movies where you can see the strings on the model planes. But who cared? John had the most important thing. He had a camera. And that's an extravagant gift, but John was an only child, and his parents wanted him to explore. John was the most creative person I had ever met. Meet Tommy Lee Wallace, John Carpenter's high school buddy. Red hair, Boy Scout, a jock on the church basketball team, and not the kind of kid that you would guess would grow up to make one of the scariest horror movies ever and actually even direct a Halloween sequel himself. I met him in the hallway. He didn't like me much, and I didn't like him. But we became close friends. Well, what didn't you like about Tommy? Oh, I don't know. It's just, <clears throat> it's a, a cultural necessity not to like somebody before you become friends with them in the South. Tommy's reverend at the church said God wanted Tommy to be a preacher. Tommy was hoping for a second opinion, and it turns out that John, not God, was going to change his life and put Tommy's Boy Scout skills to work, scaring other kids to death. He was a creative dynamo. He was drawing comic books. He was writing songs. He was making small films. I'd never seen anything like it. By the time John and Tommy became friends, John had written a novel and launched his own handmade movie magazine. He worshipped the directors Howard Hawks, Orson Welles, and Alfred Hitchcock, the three filmmakers who would all influence Halloween. Howard Hawks made rugged movies with all-American heroes and these whip-smart, angular beauties like Lauren Bacall. Orson Welles' A Touch of Evil had opened with this incredible single-take tracking shot following a blonde actress named Janet Leigh across the Tijuana border. And Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho was the most shocking horror movie anyone had ever seen. Even though when the killer stabbed that blonde actress, hey, that is also Janet Leigh, by the way, you didn't see a drop of blood. John can kind of sometimes sound like this crazy loner kid, this like Ted Kaczynski guy living in a log cabin obsessing over his passion projects. And honestly, that's kind of how he sees himself. I mean, in high school, he wrote a short story called Johnny, You're a Sweet Strange Boy. But John was popular. He was the first kid in Bowling Green with a Beatles haircut, which he got as soon as the Beatles rocked Ed Sullivan and announced that a new generation was here in America and they're about to change some stuff. After that, John would play guitar in the back of the school bus and the other kids, especially the girls by now, would gather around him and sing. Tommy would sing too. Only in looking back do I realize I was really a good candidate to harmonize with another person singing the melody. And that's what I did. And I guess that formed the the real first stage basis of our friendship. John was so popular, he pulled off something practically impossible. I mean, this weirdo artsy kid, this Yankee, got voted high school class president. Yeah, I was. It was a mistake. It was a big mistake. I have no idea why. And we were the worst class in the history of our high school, (laughs) led by me. (laughs) John was confident. He had girlfriends. He had this glow, like not the type of glow that beams outward like a theater kid who's desperate for attention. He had the inward glow, the kind of somebody who knows quietly that they are going to do something great, the kind of warm glow that draws people close. He really was a mentor for me in the beginning about creativity. And if you want to make something up, you can do that. It just it uh, it rocked my world quite a bit. 
Tommy and John launched a creative partnership that would last for decades. First, they formed a nerdy polk band that played in church basements with John's high school girlfriend, Elizabeth. Then, Tommy invited John to join a second band, The Kaleidoscope, which was this, like, psychedelic rock band that painted their amplifiers with, like, cool Dayglo pant men, and then they dressed up in these wild costumes. John wore this green Chinese satin blouse that he borrowed from his mom. The Kaleidoscope covered, like, Jefferson Airplane and The Doors, and they introduced the frat houses of Southern Kentucky to Jimi Hendrix. John graduated, and even though he seemed too big for Bowling Green, he stuck around. He even just stayed at Western Kentucky University, which, as you know, is not just his hometown. It's his literal home because he is still living in this log cabin on campus. But one day, while he was a student at Western Kentucky University, John took a school trip that would prove to be fateful. I went to uh, the there was a county insane asylum. For a psychology class. And 50 years ago, by the way, sanitariums were, shall we say, more gothic. Ooh, yeah. Anyway, you know, there they are, the real folks and uh, who are mentally disturbed. And there's this one guy, look, he looked like evil, incarnate, just the expression on his face. I don't know what was wrong with him. You know, I don't know his, what he, his problem was, but he looked like he wanted to kill me and eat me. Fifty years later, John still remembers that face. He looked like a murderer. And so that was kind of the backstory for uh, um, Michael Myers and Halloween. The back, back, back story, because here is what has to happen next. Tommy has to elbow John to leave Bowling Green. Tommy takes his weirdo friend to the library. They pull out this huge, heavy book listing all of the colleges in America. And the boys flip their way to the film school at the University of Southern California. That's Los Angeles. That's Hollywood. John leaves Tommy follows, and these two rock and roll kids are going to meet their movie idols and meet their third best friend. Together, they will start off winning an Oscar. Then they'll make a flop. Then they'll make a sort of flop. And then they will meet an old school Hollywood whiz who thinks he can make John a star. And John will fall in love with Deborah Hill, this brilliant, wild-haired girl who will co-write and produce Halloween, the movie that will turn him and her and all of their friends into legends. And that list of friends includes Jamie Lee Curtis, a teenage actress who just happens to be the daughter of Janet Lee, that blonde actress that John cannot stop watching in Touch of Evil and Psycho. I was linked to my mother, as I said, all the way down the line. I've been linked to my mother and father from my birth because I'm a famous kid. The next 10 years from 1968 to 1978 will change horror forever because that is when John takes the hidden evil that he saw in Kentucky and he turns it into this movie that will terrify audiences around the world. Goodbye, Bowling Green. Thank you for giving Halloween setting its soul. What is it about the suburbs that's scary? Oh, everything. And but it's just, it's not a place that you think that anything evil could take place. But uh, it's, you know, people, people are trapped in there and they scheme and they, there's, there's trouble in the suburbs, always. And Deborah gave Halloween's town a name. The name of her hometown, Haddonfield. Doctor, do you know what Haddonfield is? Families, children, all lined up in rows up and down these streets. You're telling me they're lined up for a slaughterhouse. They could be. They will be. Join the slaughter in episode two. Subscribe to Unmasked and stay tuned, or should I say... I'll be right back. Don't get dressed.
Halloween Unmasked is a co-production of The Ringer and Neon Hum Media. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson, and our producers are Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Mack, and Greta Weber. Production assistance from Kaya McMullen and Kara Navatia. And additional support and a special thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. And an ultra-special thanks to you creeps for listening to Halloween Unmasked. <laughs>